Peter from IHS Market is back to tell us all about their Innovation Jam at TPM last month and who the innovators were, who the winners were, and what came out of TPM in the future of shipping as well. For more information about that episode, go to Let's Talk Supply Chain dot com forward slash slash season two dash episode 12. You're not going to want to miss that one. Welcome to Let's Talk Supply Chain. My name is Sarah Barnes Humphrey. And each week I bring you the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about best practices, new innovation, and most up-to-date information about supply chain. I believe that collaboration is the future of business, and I have designed this show to ensure you have all the information you need to succeed in business and in your supply chain. First, a word from our sponsor, Border Buddy. More and more companies are looking to expand their reach into global markets, but most don't know where to start or don't have the time to figure it out. Border Buddy sees the struggle and has created a way for you to integrate customs into your e-commerce shopping cart, like Shopify, Magento, eBay, and others, allowing you ease and peace of mind when selling to customers in North America. Your customers will know exactly how much the costs are to import their order from your door to theirs in real time. We're the first API-based custom solution. Just imagine what that will do for your business and your sales. Visit us and sign up for 10% off your first clearance at borderbuddy.com forward slash let's talk supply chain. Welcome to the show, Ruth. I am so excited to have you on and really looking forward to our discussion today. Well, thank you, Sarah. I'm uh, pretty excited too. I don't often get to uh, speak about what we are and what we do and CIFA. So I'm pleased to be here this morning. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's get right into it. So why don't you tell us, you know, what is CIFA? What what do you do and what is it all about? Well, CIFA is a national, Canadian national industry association, and we were incorporated about 70 years ago. Um, and our core purpose is to represent the global logistics sector in Canada. Today, we boast about 260 global logistics service providers, regular member firms, um, and some of them are household names, you know, the big global multinationals, and uh, right to small and medium-sized um, Canadian companies. And, you know, but maybe the question is, so that's what SIF is, that's what we do. But, you know, does everybody listening understand, you know, maybe the question is, what is a freight forwarder? Do we need to ask that question or does everybody know that? Yeah, you may as well. Let's let's talk about what exactly a freight forwarder is. Because, you know, I go to cocktail parties and people say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a freight forwarder. And their eyes glaze over and they go, what kind of forester? You know, and I go, no, no, freight forwarder. So we like to describe our members and the activity of the member firms and all of their employees as really we're orchestrators of global transportation, you know, pulling all the strings and the, and the winds and everything together to, you know, to deliver, um, that great sound. Or ultimately we, we say that freight forwarders are architects of global transportation solutions. So we're bringing, you know, we're moving goods all around the world, uh, across, uh, physical barriers and political borders. So. That's what a freight forwarder is, and CIFA is the organization in Canada that represents forwarders. 
I love that you gave that example because I run in I I run into the same thing all the time. You know, you say the word freight forwarder and, and people are like, What? What? what is that? I know, I know. And I've also heard of freight forwarders being called sort of the travel agents for freight, if we want to really break it down a little bit, you know. Yeah, I know. I prefer architects of trans- international transportation solutions. I mean, when you say, you know, tra- travel agents for freight, I think it's a lot more than that because passengers can talk and cargo can't. So passengers can help solve their own problems. They can help find their own solutions. But cargo as a rule is a box. It's a crate. It's a skid. It's a factory being moved. It it really has difficulty. It can't help with its own movement. So I know a lot of people call us uh, travel agents for freight. I prefer architects of transportation solutions. <laughs> got it. Got it. And I, I would agree with that. Okay. So SIFA um, is not only a membership organization, but you have specialized programs and designations. And I, this is something that I get asked about all the time from listeners. You know, why should people seek out a designation or have one on their resume? Well, it's, so talking from CIFA's perspective, we started vocational training and technical training back in the 70s. I mean, our association's been around for 70 years. But in the 70s, there was nobody with training or educational background in the movement of goods. And you couldn't go to a university or college. Logistics, the word, hadn't been invented yet, let alone supply chain. So we started with this technical vocational training and the certificate program and then the advanced certificate program. And in the last couple of years, we've introduced, we've partnered with the Schulich School of Business at York University and introduced management training, all because, all leading up to the professional freight forwarder designation. So in creating the designation, it was a real challenge in in trying to find that balance between finding a setting standards that are achievable by many but are still challenging to to obtain so we it's a mark generally a designation is a mark of excellence in a chosen field but it's also i think an indication of commitment to the field so for the PFF, the Professional Freight Forwarder designation, for example, it's a commitment to this global logistics sector. Um, and because our sector is maturing, the our professional designation, any professional designation can help establish standards or basically set the bar in the industry. So, and one of the things that we found is our members, our 260 freight forwarding members and our you know, 150 associate members, they find that the designation gives them an easy way to recognize an industry professional. So it's a combination of work experience and training and education, and there's ongoing education commitments, and most professional designations, I think, would have that. So the value is it helps employers and it helps individuals, and it's all about establishing that standard. 
So. Yeah, and I would agree with that because a lot of times when you think about the designation, you think about the educational component, but a lot of times uh, to be able to get that designation, there is um, a training aspect to it that you just brought up. And that's a really good point because it shows employers that you've um, taken the time and, and gone out and done the training and not just the educational side. So you've got real life experience along with specialized education. Exactly. And the ongoing commitment, too. I mean, you have to attend ongoing um, educational opportunities. You have to commit to, you know, working in the sector. Um, so it's it's more than just an educational component, and it's renewed every year. So, And most, I think most professional designations have a renewal component on that. So whether yeah. it's lifelong uh, learning or continued experience. So, yeah, and, and because our association has three basic pillars, you know, one is membership and building community. One is advocacy. And I think we're going to move in and talk a little bit now about our, you know, our advocacy initiatives in the intermodal uh, world. And this third one is um, education. And it's all about building bench strength in the sector. So that's why where our professional designation came from is this raising the standard and the professionalism of the industry. Yeah, and it provides a community of like-minded individuals as well. You know, if everybody's got that designation, you know when you go to an event or, or have a networking opportunity that, you've, that you're surrounded with by in, individuals that have sort of been through the same training and the same educational process. So that's a really good one to point yeah. out as well. So yeah. You just spoke about the advocacy part, and one of the reasons why we are having this interview today is because of your most recent letter to the government about um, the challenges in intermodal. Um, I think that we need more people speaking up on this subject, um, especially in Canada. I know the U.S. as well, because I just feel like, you know, the infrastructure is just not where it needs to be. Um, for countries like Canada and the U.S. for the amount of cargo and the amount of businesses that rely on the infrastructure to be able to make their businesses profitable. So before we jump right into it, you know, can you just talk a little bit about what is intermodal cargo? Oh, for sure. Um, and I love, you know, I love technical language. Um, and our sector is full of technical language. So, I mean, in its simplest form, an intermodal, intermodal container is just a large standardized shipping container. Um, and it's designed to go across modes. Then it means it could be moved from a, a truck to a vessel to a rail, um, without unloading or reloading the cargo in it. So for our, Purpose. I mean, it can be used in domestic trade from a truck to a rail, but for us, it's a marine ocean container. So we talk about marine intermodal, which is just a shipping container, standardized 20 feet long or 40 feet long that goes from a vessel to a rail to a, you know, to a, to a truck to a, and then to an importer and exporter. So, um, that's what intermodal cargo is. Yeah, and I love you. I love that you bring up the fact that there are so many, you know, different acronyms and different words that we use that most people, again, cross their eyes at because they don't really know 
you know, what they mean. And one of the, one of the (laughs) remedies that I sort of came up with for this was I've put together a supply chain dictionary. It's over a hundred pages. I was shocked (laughs) at the amount of acronyms and and different words that we use in this industry, but it came out to over a hundred pages. So I actually have that on my website, um, at let's talk supply chain.com forward slash shop in case anybody is looking for, you know, just a guide or, or something to help with some of those words and, and acronyms acronyms. So um, now that we know what intermodal cargo is all about, what are the current challenges with intermodal cargo today? Oh yeah, that's a short question. And I think a really long answer. So basically as we identified in our letter, Intermodal cargo has not moved efficiently or effectively in Canada since, I would say, since early spring of 2017. So that's a year ago. Now, part of that is in the winter. We would expect to have trouble in the winter. And, and part of the reason so that, of that is due to weather, storms. So the challenges are basically that Cargo coming into the country, intermodal cargo coming into the country is dwelling or it's sitting. So it's coming off of vessel and it's sitting on a dock. Normally in fluid conditions, it would sit on a dock, say at Vancouver or Prince Rupert, which Prince Rupert has been exceptional ever since, you know, for the last five or seven years. Uh, two days would be normal in Prince Rupert and maybe three days or three and a half days would be normal uh, dwell times at the Port of Vancouver. And what we found over the past several months is that those dwell times have crept up. So now, until very recently, we were facing dwell times at Prince Rupert, which is unusual. They had some problems back in September. Um you know, they had an incident and they had to close their port for a day and, and then they had some on-dock uh, revisions going on that, that didn't go as well as one might have expected. So their delays went up to as much as seven to eight days at one point. Now, that's back down. Prince Rupert has written us a letter. So we, we copied our letter to the ministers. We wrote to Minister Garneau, who's the Minister of Transport, and Minister Champagne, uh, who is... Uh, for international trade, and uh, we copied some of the ports and the railroads. And so Prince Rupert has responded to us, and they have addressed their problems, and it is fluid now. But but some of the terminals at the Port of Vancouver, for example, are still backlogged at seven or eight days. Um, so what happens is we get these backlogs of cargo, and... Part of the problem is that the railroads don't have the capacity to get the empty cars. Remember I said intermodal cargo goes from a vessel, it goes to a vessel, but it goes from a vessel to a dock, to a railroad. And then the railroads, because in Canada, I mean, our consumer goods are not consumed in Vancouver or Halifax for the most part. They're consumed, you know, in central Canada where the consumer market is. It's in Toronto and that's or in, you know, Montreal. And all the way across the country. And that's where our manufacturing hubs are as well. So inbound cargo, I talk about consumer goods, but it's also inputs for manufacturing purposes. So what has happened over the last several months is we've had these big delays. The railroads have not been able to get their 
cars there because you have to lift the container up with a crane. You have to lift it off the boat onto the dock or excuse me, I'm supposed to say vessel, <laughs> lift it off the vessel onto a dock and then lift it off the dock onto a rail car. And then you bring the rail cards east or west as the case may be. So it's been this whole combination of things. Um, the dwell times on the docks, which has been contributed to because of lack of rail cars, or rail equipment. But it gets even more interesting in the, in the winter. I mean, we have all sorts of things like you never think of. Storms, for example, storms on the Pacific can cause ocean vessels to go off schedule. So if a vessel is supposed to dock on a Tuesday and it takes two days to unload it, then that's fine. And the next vessel is scheduled to arrive on Wednesday afternoon and it gets unloaded. But what happens is with these big storms and with rotation problems, we get vessel bunching. So all of a sudden, you won't have any vessels for three days and then you'll have three vessels arriving. They can't, you know, it's only so many cranes. There's only so much infrastructure on the docks that can handle that. So the challenges have been mostly related to delays, uh, vessel bunching, a very cold winter across the prairies. Um, and incredibly, big spikes in volumes. Uh, you know, I don't know if you, have you, have you read, have, like, in in the the report, so there's been a bumper uh, grain crop this year again, um, but coal, potash, all of those things have had big spikes up this year. So we're trying to move export these commodities, which very often go into ocean containers and become intermodal, are trying to get out, and we're trying to get consumer goods and manufacturing inputs in. Um, all of which have seen a big uh, spike up. So I was just reading, for example, uh, the Port of Vancouver released uh, just, just last week, I think, they released their 2017 um, movement data, their, 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 what do you call it, their um, stats for 2017. And uh, it's been, they had a growth just in their container traffic of 11% over 2016. So, you know, who would expect, who could plan for an 11% growth? Yeah, um, I'm going to, I'm going to just jump in there for yeah. a second. But I, I also believe that they are gearing up for even more growth by 2020. Like I think it's supposed to go up another 15 to 20%. So yeah. I mean, if we're looking at the stats and we're looking at, you know, the, the people that are doing the research on this and that that's what they're predicting. I mean, you would hope and think that they would, put that into their thoughts and, and, and what's going to be happening on the intermodal and infrastructure side. Well, exactly. So, you know, I mean, to give them credit, I mean, uh, you know, the railroads, I think, have not invested enough. Um, there has not been enough, you know, investment by the railroads um, over the last couple of years. Um, and the terminal operators, so it's not the ports, it's the terminal operators that at least the land from the ports and they run the cranes and they run the labor. And so, but that's a big area where it's private infrastructure investment at the terminals at our ports, whether it's Halifax or Prince Rupert or, uh, you know, Vancouver and then the railroads infrastructure um, investment. So it's, uh, I think there has been, uh, uh, you know, 
think the railroads would have been better to have invested in 2016 and 2017. Now they've come out, all the, both of our national railroads, uh, Canadian National and Canadian Pacific are making investments now in 2018. They're buying locomotives. Um, CN had an industry uh, meeting a couple of weeks ago in Toronto where they announced a $3 billion this year in infrastructure investment. And to give them credit, I mean, everybody maybe expected a 4 or 5% spike, but who would have thought that Vancouver's intermodal cargo would be up 11% in a year, year over year? I mean, that's huge. And CN, their third quarter... 2017, their volumes were up 14% compared with the same period last year. You know, and that's that's a phenomenal growth. I mean, that's a good news story. Um, and that, I agree with you, Sarah. I think we are expecting a continuation. I mean, yes, it's 2018, 2019. We shouldn't see double-digit growth again. Um, but I think people we are expecting growth to 2020. And I think that's why, you know, like Vancouver, for example, is looking at an expansion of their uh, terminal, the the Roberts Bank expansion uh, to build a new terminal. And they're at the federal level right now looking for permissions to do that. Um, Yeah. And I, you know, and I, and we're going to get to some of those answers a little mm -hmm. bit, bit further down in the interview, but I think you bring up a, a pretty good point about this industry in general, and that is be and that is that it's very siloed, and we can see from just talking about intermodal and the different um, respective organizations or or you know different companies or different private sector companies that are handling the different points parts of the intermodal, the, uh, handling the different parts of the infrastructure. It's extremely siloed and it's very broken. And I've said this before in my podcast that I believe that the future is in collaboration. And I think until our industry and our government and our private sector companies get around that, I'm just not sure how we're going to solve that. But again, we're going to talk about the, a few of the answers, you know, coming up in, in, in the interview. And just for our listeners sake, um, I will be linking to your letter, um, on the podcast page, which is let's talk supply forward slash season two episode 13. So if anybody's looking for that letter, I will definitely have that link. So what are some of the, you know, what are some of CIFA's concerns about the strategic and long-term future of our ports, railroads and intermodal movement of goods? And, you know, I bring up one point just then um, about the siloed approach and, you know, you know, collaboration and, and things like that. So what are your, your concerns on that? Well, and I agree that we are siloed, but I also, it's also important that we remember we're talking a lot about private sector. So our railroads are private. Um, the terminal operators are private. So I think I agree with you. I think we have a, a great long-term future um, for their movement of goods in this country. Um, but we do need more collaboration. You know, that said, for example, our association, our freight forwarders, we have a really good relationship with both of the national railroads, with all of the ports in Canada, um, with the terminal operators to a certain extent. It's, it seems to me, it's, it, 
and the, the reason we wrote the letter is it's not any single player's fault or problem. And we, we don't want the federal government. I mean, I think that there, we, we, we have danger when, with the, when the federal government does things like legislates the movement of grain. For example, I mean, yes, the movement of grain is very important. Uh, it is critical to our, to our Western farmers, but that's a very complicated export supply chain. And, you know, when the wheat board was disbanded, that central focus disappeared. And so I think a lot of the problems in the movement of grain have been resulted from that. But what happens when the federal government focuses on the movement of grain the ramifications are elsewhere. All of a sudden, railroads are mandated to move grain, which means that their cars, their equipment, their locomotives, their engineers have to move the grain, which means they can't move in other intermodal cargo. They can't move other export goods. They can't move automotive. They can't move consumer uh, containers full of consumer uh, goods, either inbound or outbound. So, you know, I think that's where we we then said, you know, we have to have a, 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 a national approach and a strategic approach to the uh, movement of goods, intermodal movement of goods. And that's why we wrote our letter. It's, you know, the siloed approach. We've been talking to the railroads. We've been talking to the ports. We've been talking to the terminals. But without that sort of umbrella government, federal government leadership, we will continue with a siloed approach. And that, I think, is something that, that we need to address. Um, now, um, Minister Garneau has la- launched recently a port review, the, the port authorities review, um, to, uh, you know, he wants to look at optimizing the port's role um, in the transportation system. And uh, certainly our association will be making a submission, as will, I'm sure, most other groups representing uh, Canadian traders and and vessel operators. Um, and that's one thing, and I think that's an indication that the government recognizes that they have to um, increase their oversight. What is the word? Is it leadership that we're looking for uh, from the federal government cross across, uh, you know, with the private sector? Um, yeah, leadership or, you know, accountability, maybe. I don't know if that's the word. I, well, it's interesting you say that. Um, a few years ago, I think it was 2015, um, Minister Garneau um, had the Canada Transportation Act review, which ultimately became the Emerson Report, and it was tabled in the House of Commons in, like, February 2016. And in our submission, uh, CIFA, on behalf of its members, we talked about the need to address accountability throughout you know, Canada's international supply chains. And so things like what is the role of the port with respect to its terminal operators and with respect to responsibility um, for the movement of goods? So, you know, the ports in Canada are, are, are landlords and they lease their, their space to terminal operators and it's the terminal operators who have, who, Moved, you know, move the goods on and off vessels, move containers on and off vessels and bulk goods, um, and all commodities. So it, it is an accountability issue, I think. And I think it, it's a, what we look to the federal government to, to 
to do is to provide leadership, to provide the opportunity to provide that collaborative environment where all of the stakeholders can work together. Um, now, you know, you look at the ports. The Port of Vancouver does an excellent job in posting their daily metrics, their rail metrics and their truck metrics. So you can see what, what the status is there. Um, of their dwell times, for example, uh, Prince Rupert uh, publishes good data. But, but if we want to talk about data, um, you know, I think that's going to be in one of the answers too. I mean, you know, that's an area that we really need to look at a little bit. So, you know, one of the big challenges is today for cargo interests, for importers and exporters, whether they're manufacturers, retailers, it's the unpredictability. It's the unreliability. And yeah, that was, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna uh, jump in here. I mean, that was kind of, that kind of flows into sort of the next question. You know, Um, we talk about the challenges and sort of what's going on and the approach and the accountability and, and things like that. But how is this affecting companies bottom line? I mean, at the end of the day, they're the ones that are driving this economy. They're the ones that are, you know, importing the goods, importing the manufacturing goods, exporting as well. So what, how is this affecting their bottom line? Well, number one, un- unreliability in transit times, unpredictability. We have congestion at the rail terminals, which we've had, you know, I think it's better now, but from last April till probably January, drivers were lining up, um, waiting to get into rail terminals. So there's what I call the, the direct cost of delay. So that's increased demurrage time, which is the the cost of uh, equipment that is not, you know, uh, returned to the operator within the agreed free time. So it's like a storage charge for equipment. So um, companies are paying storage charges. Companies are paying wait time for drivers to get in and out of uh, rail terminals and port terminals because, you know, the drivers have a flat rate. I don't know, say it's $250 to pick up a container and deliver it to its destination and then to return it empty. So there's all this container movement. So let's say it's $250. And they base that on the fact that they can make four container runs a day. So they can make a, a living wage, pay for their truck, or maybe even three run turns a day. But what happens is if there's congestion at the terminals and the docks, then that driver is lined up. He might wait three, four, five hours to get that container or to return a container. So he can only make one run a day or two runs a day. So there's that direct cost to truckers. Truckers don't want to work anymore doing what we call dray operating, which is moving a container on a truck chassis. It's called drayage. So truckers don't want to do it. They're charging wait time now um, because their drivers are waiting and and it's hard to get drivers in this day and age. So there's those direct costs. But what what the costs that people don't realize are things like for the international freight forwarder, for the global logistics service provider, we have a huge cost of receivables. So if a CIFA member, say an inbound container, let's just use, use an inbound example. A container is supposed to arrive on, uh, it's Tuesday. It does arrive on Tuesday. It's discharged at the port of Vancouver on a Tuesday. The freight forwarder pays the steamship line on Tuesday. And 
for those, for that container. And then the container makes its way into, um, you know, the central Ontario or, or Quebec where the goods are destined, where a lot of our consumer goods are destined. Um, and normally that would be a week. And so when the goods arrive at destination, the freight forwarder invoices the, the, the importer, their customer, and they get paid. Well, you know what happens if the goods sit two weeks on a port and then another four or five days at a terminal, that receivable can go from a day to, you know, your cash flow all of a sudden is tied up for a month because you can't bill your customer until your goods are delivered. So for, for our members, this is a big problem. It's a capital's tied up. Uh, for the importers, their capital's tied up because their goods are sitting in an ocean container and not on their retail shelf where they should be. So those are like direct costs, wait time. Indirect costs, which is the cost of inventory, the cost of receivables, the cost of capital. Then you get this unpredictability or the unreliability. Let's say, let's say you're a retailer in Quebec and you normally get, let's say your, your, your distribution center's got 10 doors and you have 10 trucks and normally you operate, you handle 50 containers per day unloading at your 10 docks. So what happens? is planning becomes impossible when you have such huge unreliability, unpredictability, and lack of data, lack of current information due to this siloing. So all of a sudden, instead of 10 trucks, 50 containers, what happens when trucks that were scheduled to arrive at 6 a.m., let's say you scheduled to have 10 trucks come in at 6 6 a.m., each with a container, to be unloaded, but your trucks are stuck at the terminal for three hours waiting to pick up those containers. So they don't get there at 6 a.m., they get there at 9 a.m. What happens then to the containers that were supposed to arrive at 9 a.m.? Are they going to get there at 10? And what happens if today you're supposed to get 50 containers, but you only get 11 because the rest are stuck on a dock someplace? And you know, you get 11 containers today instead of the 50 that you planned, but tomorrow you get 20 instead of the 50, and the next day you get the 150 that you should have had over the three days. You can't plan your yeah. labor. You can't plan your debanding. Your, your, your staff is sitting around, you know, with their finger in their ear, idle. Yeah. So, yeah, and not only that, but there's there's also extra costs on the demerge and storage oh, side. Wait, so those are because they don't give you a lot of time to get the container out, and especially when something like that happens and you can't plan. Twenty four hours, you know, you have twenty four hours yeah, to get a container out of a rail terminal yeah. these days, and it's like, excuse me. So you have all the direct costs, the storage costs, demerge, uh, the wait time costs, and then all of the indirect costs. It costs. I, I, millions over the last six or eight months on this congestion yeah. issue. So yeah. it is very immediate. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I don't think all Canadians realize. So I just use it, you know, a retail example, but there's lots of other examples. I mean, your goods are going to cost more on the store because somebody's going to have to pay for those hidden costs or indirect costs. But what about Canadian manufacturers who get all of their, a lot of inputs come in, say from, from Asia, they're coming into this country, they're being put together, manufactured, and then exported again. Or for the Canadian domestic market, those costs are going up. 
because we, you know, so it's a Canadian problem, <laughs> you know. Well, I, you know what, I don't think that it is just Canadian. I also think that there are some similar struggles in the U.S. as well, because I know in my experience, you know, shipping um, anything by rail, anything by ocean freight going into the U.S., if it's not stopping in L.A. or or Seattle and it's going cross country by by train, um, it's just not a priority. And it just it just seems to take forever. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize is that transit times cost companies money because their product, like you said, they've already paid for the product. It's not out on the shelf being, being um, sold. So then I guess, what is the answer? You know, what do you guys see as the answer? What can companies do to, you know, maybe have their voices heard um, and really, you know, explain uh, to these private sector companies and maybe even the government to really have them understand the struggles and what it's actually costing the Canadian economy. I think, well, obviously I don't think there's a simple answer because I think that if there was a simple answer, it would have been done. I want to circle back to your point about the United States. This is not just a Canadian issue. You're absolutely right. It's a North American issue right now. I think, um, you know, there's a lot going on. The railroads have been called into the United States to the Surface Transportation Bureau, and they're answering questions there. But this transit time issue, it's all about integrity and confidence and trust. And I think that's why Prince Rupert and CN in particular have worked so hard to get that Asia to Prince Rupert to um, the U.S. Midwest. That's a very important transit um lane or network um, for Canadians. I mean, people say, well, we're concerned about Canadian cargo. Well, we're also concerned about American cargo. So we have to keep Prince Rupert fluid. And I think that's why they've invested and and very quickly got that Prince Rupert uh, port back to being fluid. So that's that's just, you know, one thing. So individual companies can make a difference. Um, more private investment sector, I think, private sector investment, I think, is needed uh, in infrastructure, more locomotives, more double tracking, longer sidings. Um, and the railroads have recognized this and I think are doing it. Um, now, 2018, we're going to see a, a significant investment. I think one of the things that we need in Canada, and perhaps it's a North American solution, but I think we'd be much better in Canada is a focus on better data sharing and accessibility to data. Um, we talked about it before. I mean, we, we need to be able to plan. And if you have access to cross-functional silo data, so if the railroads know what's on the vessels and if the terminal operators know when the vessel is going to arrive and if, if the international freight forwarder has visibility to those data, they can plan and we can share those data with Canada's exporters and Canada's importers. So I really think part of the answer is a federal oversight, federal leadership in this data sharing. I'm very interested to see what uh, the federal government's going to do uh, with their this Canadian Centre on Transportation Data, where in the 2017 federal budget, they allowed $50 million over 11, 11 years to transport Canada for a trade and transportation information system. 
I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know if it's going to serve this need for transparency and immediate visibility to um, cargo, but that is encouraging. Uh, you know, and yeah, and I guess, I guess only time will tell with some of those things. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's a lot of innovation coming into our sector. Um, there's a lot of data, data driven technology that's coming into the sector and it's going to be very, very interesting yeah. to see. So, um, before we wind down, I just want to ask you, you know, what's next for CIFA? Oh, glad you asked. CIFA has another 70 exciting 70 years of representing global logistics service providers, um, in this world of incredibly rapid change that we're living in. Um, so, you know, we're celebrating seven, our 70th anniversary. We were started in 1948 by five guys in Montreal. And here we are at 200. I know, isn't that great? It's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Completely. We've rebranded. We've gone from our old oval logo. We've got a new forward-looking um, logo. And, uh, you know, as one of our directors said, there's CIFA still sexy at 70 with this. You know, we're, we're sort of revising our outward brand. And one of the big things, we're celebrating with a special anniversary conference. I think our association is the only association in the universe that does not do an annual conference. We don't do regional conferences. But this year, October 16th to 18th, in Toronto, CIFA is hosting a 70th anniversary conference. It's... Um, Global Supply Chains in a Digital Future, Innovation and Inspiration. And very much to your, you know, your last comments, your thoughts about our, our sector, this whole transportation sector is we're undergoing, we have so much opportunity with all the technological changes that are coming, everything from blockchain to driverless autonomous vehicles to drone deliveries. So our conference is really focusing on giving some practical insights to everybody in the sector who's interested in the movement of goods on how is this technology impacting our business and how might it impact our business in the immediate future. I mean, we're talking in the next, you know, six months to a year. Um, so we're really excited about that um, 70th anniversary conference. Um, which is a, it's a big deal for us. But the other things that we're focusing on, we're celebrating, but we're also continuing, you know, we're continuing to build capacity with our technical training, our, our certificate and advanced certificate, the vocational training. Earlier in our conversation, I talked about our competency-based management training with the Schulich School of Business at York. So it's that, you know, you hear people talk about capacity building. What is capacity building? For us, it's all about building bench strength, making sure that the employees of our member firms and any firm, Canada's traders, Canada's importers and exporters really need to know what's going on with technology changes, with, you know, little things like cargo insurance and general average and inco terms. And so we're very much playing in that sector of all about building capacity to help drive uh, cargo and to help drive Canadian, help Canadian traders uh, trade more. Awesome. 
Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's amazing. And you know what? I'm, I'm so excited to see what you guys, what you guys are doing. And I, I want to commend you on, um, incorporating the management side and not just focusing on the logistics and, and freight side, because I think that the management portion is a really, really, um, you know, big issue. People need to be trained to be able to manage other people regardless of what sector you're in. And if you can combine that with your designation, I think, I think that's a really good combination. So there you have it. If money isn't spent on infrastructure, supply chain and bottom lines can be severely affected. I will have a free download and more information about Ruth and Sifa and the link to that letter on letstalksupplychain.com forward slash season two dash episode 13. To learn more about Sifa, go to their website. It's CIFFA.com and make sure to connect with Ruth on LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Ruth, for coming on the show. Thanks so today. much for inviting me, Sarah. It's been great. Thank you. If you liked this episode, go and check out Caroline Tompkins of Fit. That's on Season 1, Episode 14. Or maybe go and check out Andrew and Gina talking about the difference between logistics manager and supply chain manager in Season 1, Episode 10. Next week, we have another Woman in Supply Chain series coming your way. It's Part 7, and we're talking to Mary Long. She's going to tell us all about her journey to success working with some of the biggest brands, as well as the importance of supply chain education. Remember to go and sign up at ships.com. That's S-H-I-P-Z.com. And make sure you are one of the first people to know when we are ready to let you know what we're working on. Yes, it's my top secret project, and I cannot wait to share it with you, but I will not be sharing it with you unless you are on that list. Remember that I feature our listeners when you rate and review us on iTunes, or if you want to email me at listener at letstalksupplychain.com and send me a review there. Thank you so much for joining me in this incredible journey. I hope you have an amazing day. And remember, everybody, ship happens. <laughs>